Hey, my name is Justin Hill, and I'm a transformed follower of Jesus Christ. This Sunday, I heard the gospel presented so clearly, and uh, I felt the Holy Spirit calling me to that next step of baptism. And uh, like every other time before, I could think of a bunch of reasons of why, you know, how I wasn't ready to get baptized. And my family wasn't there, so I couldn't get baptized, or I just wasn't quite in my walk where I needed to be with Christ. And uh, so I actually left the 1045 service and um, just kept felt, feeling the Holy Spirit just tugging on my heart and um, to where it finally uh, clicked to where I realized that I, God doesn't call me, I'm never going to be enough and that God just calls me to be obedient. Uh, so I actually got back in the car and drove back to Chapel Point and uh, went and talked to somebody and just told them I needed to get baptized today. I love that type of story where somebody is going outside of what we would consider to be the norm and engaging with God and allowing God to speak into their life. Uh, the coolest part of the story is he actually drove all the way back to Cincinnati and then drove back again. It was a long, I'm just kidding. Wouldn't that be cool though? You're like, we have a Sunday night service? We do now. Um, it's just really cool to see how God is, is stepping into hearts and doing so many cool things. Um, I'm Joel. It's good to be with you today. We're in a series called Restore. You can say Restore. First Corinthians chapter 15. We have been in this since January. Uh, next week, I'm going to finish chapter 15, and then we have two weeks of chapter 16, and we're done with First Corinthians. Uh, and it's going to be a lot of fun just to dive into some stuff this fall. But before we go into First Corinthians chapter 15, I'm looking at 12 through 34 today. First Corinthians 15, 12 through 34. Before we jump into that, I want to conclude, uh, well, last week I concluded with something that I want to kind of step back into today, which we just had a time of silence. We had a, a time of, of sitting with God and saying, okay, God, what do you want me to learn? And, and, and we needed God to speak. There's a lot of hard things going on. There are marriages that are struggling. There are individuals that are just tremendous in, insecurities and anxiety, and there are sicknesses and disease and health issues and financial issues and job issues and relationship. There's just so many things that we can walk through. And I know that for some of you, it may feel like there's never an end, but I promise you that God is above all of it. And so can we just begin uh, with just a moment of silence? Let's, let's just pray together. God, we love you, and we ask that you would speak into our heart, that you, would, that you would shape our thinking, that the truth would penetrate any barrier that we may have. Provide your comfort as we hear from you. 
Amen. Well, again, it's good to be with you today. 1 Corinthians 15, open up the Word of God, if you would, to that. We know that 1 Corinthians is written by Paul, writing likely from Ephesus. Uh, We're looking at this as likely his second letter, not his first. Um, But here he is, 1 Corinthians. He's writing this letter to them. And Corinth is a place, a lot of sexual immorality, a lot of of wealth. It was on an isthmus there in between two seas. So it was a trade route that a lot of people were impacted by. And so a lot of prominence uh, that was taking place there. And he's writing to the Corinthian church, the Corinthian believer. He's gone. He's been present with them. He's spoken with them about Christ and about what Christ did through the resurrection. And now he's having to do two primary things. He's both teaching and correcting. He's teaching and correcting, teaching and correcting, teaching and correcting. He's doing both. Uh, when I speak about parenting, uh, that's often what I tell people. You know, people are like, hey, give us a rule of parenting. I'm like, you need to make sure you're teaching and correcting. And if you're only correcting, you've, it's because you haven't taught very well. So uh, some people are always like correcting, correcting, correcting. And the kids are always like, oh, man, will you just stop getting on to me? And sometimes that's because you're only correcting. and You never really spent the time to teach them the way that they need to be taught when they're young. Um, because parenting, if you don't know, I'll give you a little side snippet on parenting. Um, did you know that parenting can be absolutely a blessing? Amen. Can, did you know that it also can be absolutely exhausting? Amen. And it's because of the consistency. It's not about your kid and beating them up. It's just sometimes you just want to be left alone and just lock them in the basement and you can't do that. That's not a good way to parent, right? You just, it can be hard to be consistent in that, but that's what we want to be able to do. Well, Paul is wanting to teach them, and now he's having to step in and also correct them in some of their thinking because of the influence that others are having on them. That's what we find here in this section of Scripture. Um, It's a letter that Paul is writing to not only teach and correct, but this is going to focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're going to hear it at least 20 times today. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is vital. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian. I don't know how to say it more simply than that. Yes, I believe that we have leaders of churches not going to heaven. You're going to, how, I'm not trying to judge them. But if you don't claim the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Scripture is very clear. You're not a Christian. And some of us have to evaluate, do we really believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And he's going to tackle this because of all that's been happening and taking place there in the church of Corinth. And they were preaching and they were believing. Last week I concluded with 1 Corinthians 15, verse 11. It says, and that they were preaching and many were believing. So we know that some were hearing the words of truth and they were responding to them. And they were then believing, but others were not. In fact, we know that some were even confused. Because they had outside influences impacting their thinking, their understanding of the resurrection of Jesus. I, I want to read a passage for you that I think will help you understand what was taking place. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 16 through 18. And yes, if you're new here, I call a lot of different passages because the power of the Word of God is that it all fits together perfectly. And so you get to write these down. You may not have time to look at all of them, open them up. But if you write them down, you can go back later in the week and you can look at them. It says, but avoid ill... This is Paul writing to Timothy as well, by the way. Some people think, oh, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Timothy's right. No, Paul's writing to Timothy. So don't get confused on this. Um, But avoid irreverent babble. 
I love that language. I don't know why, but I think it's fun. I want to challenge all of us to use the word irreverent babble at least once in your common language this week. Just be fun for you. Avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. A similar word, it's not quite as strong, but it lets you understand the ungodliness it's speaking about here is actually confusion. So avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more confusion to ungodliness. It's going to lead them away, cause them to step away from the truth. That's what it's going to do. So he's saying, be careful because their talk will spread like what? It's another good word. Disgusting, right? It's the gangrene and you just, it just spreads and you're like, oh man. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth. So if you're swerving from the truth, that means you're heading, you've been headed, heading toward the truth and now hard, hard left or hard right. You've had to swerve. Think about it just like driving a car. You have to swerve from something. Why? Because you're heading toward it. So you've been heading toward the truth, but now because of the influences around you, you've swerved from the truth. We don't want to do that. And many people today in the church have swerved from the truth because we've allowed outside voices who don't want to believe in the resurrection. That's what they're trying to do. They, want, they don't want the resurrection to be true because if the resurrection is true, then you have to be changed by that. But we don't want that. As a world today, we want to be able to do whatever we want to do, live however we want to live, make the decisions that we want to make. So now they're swerving from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. That's kind of, that's what's taking place. It's a great passage for us to look at and go, this is what's occurring with the people of Corinth, with the believers in Corinth and the church there. Paul is coming, teaching, correcting, don't swerve from the truth. This is a, a broad way to think about this passage because it can also be a passage that can be a little confusing. I'm going to do my very best to simplify it as much as we can. I want you to be able to walk out of this place today and somebody go, well, tell me what that really means. And at least in a couple sentences, you can tell them. Don't just go, go listen to the message. Be able to speak the power of the truth. And so that's what we're going to better do. We look at this with the resurrection, and it just means hope for us. Last week was salvation. This week is hope. Next week is victory. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. The resurrection means hope for us. And the primary point for Paul is that to deny the resurrection of the dead is to deny the resurrection of the one who makes all resurrection possible, and his name is Jesus. And so will you please, in this moment, stand for the reading of the word of God. I want to make sure I teach you as well. Why do we stand for the reading of the word? God, it's called respect. Do we do it every single time we read scripture? We don't, but we try to at least once a week, roughly, because we think there's a reverence that comes, a respect that comes from standing for something that is perfect. It is the infallible word of God. This is what it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 12 and following. If I stop reading, you say the next word. You in? Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in And our faith is in How many of you remember the Greek word for that? A-K. Oh, now you're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like one of my kids. Did you remember the tra- take out the, the garbage? I... Right? Say it again. A-K. A-K. That's the Greek word for vain. It used it a couple of times last week. It's using it again right now. It's all in vain. This is so important. It means with, it's without cause. It's without success. It's without need. It, it's of no use. So check this out. Like, hey, listen, if he did, if, if, 
If it's true that the dead are not raised, and we're all in trouble, right? We're found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of God. You may be seated. What's that Greek word for vain again? You're brilliant scholars. Look at you. One of the things that was occurring is that the people in the church in Corinth were being influenced by two primary groups. One was Greek philosophers and their understanding of resurrection. The other thing is also Sadducees that were coming over and being a part of this. And um, they had a different understanding. They, Sadducees really just, they didn't believe in any really, uh, they thought it was just like, oh, wishful thinking kind of thing. Uh, any type of life after this life. And so this is a struggle for them and they're being impacted by this. So he's having to come and to teach and also correct them about what was really occurring, right? Because the Corinthian Christians, we know that some of them understood um, that, that we would live forever because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ with him. They needed to be reminded that resurrection is the continuation of life after death in glorified bodies. No more pain. No more hurt. And he states for them, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if the people of the church in Corinth were really confused, there are a few that were still confused, right, about the resurrection. And if you don't believe in the resurrection, that means Jesus is still dead and it's not a thing. And so when you look at the scripture, he, he, he just simply steps in and he says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, you can't say there's no resurrection, obviously, because he rose. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised, of course. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching, our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. Your, your faith is of no use, and you actually still live according to your sin, and you have no hope for anything eternal whatsoever. That's all this passage is really communicating. We can get lost in certain things, but in, in, in simplicity, that's what this is helping us to understand. That our preaching is without, here's the word again, AK, right? It's without cause, it's without success, it's in vain, without any basis. And we end up being false witnesses of God as a result if we don't believe that that's real. One of the guys there's uh, died decades and decades ago, Ironside says that the resurrection of Jesus met every requirement of infinite holiness. And if Christ is not risen, then in this life only we have hope in Christ. And we're to be pitied by everybody else. Not envied, pitied. You ever heard the saying, um, like, have you ever, anybody looked at someone and said, oh, bless their heart. Anybody said this before? Raise your hand. It's okay. You can still love Jesus. Now, there's some people, they just say that a lot. Oh, bless your heart. I used to think it was Southern, but I, I do believe that I hear it more now than when I was a kid in the South. 
I hear it a lot. I don't know. It's like an infiltration of the Southerner into the Yankeeville or something. But like I hear, like, oh, bless your heart. If you don't know, like, bless your heart, you think if you go, oh, bless your heart. Nobody says it that way. They say, bless your heart, meaning they think you are just a sad piece of humanity. Right? Well, this passage is helping us to understand that if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, everything's in vain. It's kind of like, what good is there? You're to be pitied. Bless, bless your heart. Everybody say, bless your heart. Right? It's the loudest you've ever been. That's so messed up. <laughs> Greek word for vain. What is it? Vain. Okay, you, okay, you're the cool one. Okay. It's in vain. Like, oh, bless your heart. And we're doing this so that you remember, like, like, oh, man, wait. If we really don't believe in the power of the resurrection, if what we said last week is true, that sometimes we can step in and only live our faith out as a practice rather than a, a, something to be lived and spoken and declared, right? Glory to God in the way that we think. Glory to God in the way that we make decisions. Glory to God in the way that we speak. That should be the desire of any believer. But if it's just a practice and you're just showing up here to church, sometimes here and there because you think the music is cool, then it doesn't matter. If you don't believe in the power of the resurrected Jesus conquering death, you don't have eternal life. And if your hope is temporary, if you don't, you're to be pitied. Like, I mean, think about it. You're giving your life and your energy and your resources to something that you don't actually even believe leads to something that's eternal. Why would you do that? Bless, bless your heart. So again, if there's no resurrection, if Christ is not risen, risen, our preaching is empty, our faith is out cause, we're still in our sins, and we're to be pitied by others. 12 through 20. Simple. Challenging. But simple. 21 and following says this, For as by a man came death, and by, uh, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, now you, Christ is seen as the second Adam. I'll talk, touch base on that in a second. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Say first fruits. This is important. It's going to refer, it's going to use this word a good bit. You're going to, later on you're going to go, what? Okay, so it's because it's so important. It's wonderful to see how this plays out. So for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has ex accepted all who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Can we say the word subjection one more time? Right Here in this, uh, he, Paul is writing to them, and not only is he letting them know that their hope overcomes despair, but their hope is found in the authority of Christ. 
And if you haven't given Jesus authority, hope doesn't even really exist on the eternal basis. And so he's going to come out in this, what he just did in 20, uh, 20 through 28, really, is he says, Christ reigns as the first fruits from the dead. Christ reigns as the second Adam. That's also in Romans, uh, Romans chapter 5, by the way. All right? Um, uh, which is another way of thinking that he really is um, the second head of the human race. That's, that's what that's conveying. Um, that Christ reigns as king of kings, that Christ reigns until all enemies are under his feet and until all are under his subject in submission to the heavenly father. Um, first fruits is the Greek word aparche. Now, this is, this is fascinating. Leviticus chapter 23. How many of you have already read through Leviticus every day of the week, right? You love that? You just love Leviticus. It's not one of those books that's like, oh, man, I got to read Leviticus. But there's some really important things in there. And what we find... In Leviticus chapter 23, 9 through 14, is it the, uh, it's about the Feast of First Fruits. So the Jewish believer had a lot of different feasts, and one of those feasts was the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of First Fruits observed, was observed on the, fir- on the day after the Sabbath, that Sabbath, on, uh, following Passover, during the midst of it. So here he is, and he's now referring to Jesus as First Fruits. According to secular thinking, First fruits literally meant entrance fee. So now, process this. So now, here, the first fruit, the entrance fee to eternal life is the resurrection of Jesus, which happened on the exact day of the first fruits, of the feast of first fruits that's mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23. That's why I love, that's why you go, wow. Okay. Um, guys, it's over thousands of years. It all fits together perfectly. Listen to this. There's this feast of first fruits. You've got, like, I need you to, like, not just go, I'm a believer. I need you to go, it's altered my entire eternity, right? It's a different comprehension. And that's why he's correcting this, because he knew if they don't get this right, at some point, the whole thing falls off a cliff. Without the resurrection of Jesus, it falls off a cliff without understanding what it really means. And so now he's saying it's the first fruits. Don't you understand this feast was observed on the day after the Sabbath following Passover and the day, right, after this, on the Sabbath after Passover, that's when Jesus Christ conquered death, came out of the tomb and claimed victory for all who profess faith in him. Like that's when you go, oh, so over the course of all of these centuries, it still lines up perfectly. That deserves a wow. Yeah, no, no, I'm really not waiting, but if you know, I, you, you know what he's about to do here in a second? Is he's about to tell them to do two things. He's going to say, wake up. Because they don't get it. Like some of them did, some, right? First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 11, they preached, some believed, and others are like, ah, okay, yeah, so some got it, but he's telling them, don't you understand what he's actually been? He's been he is the first fruits. He's the entrance fee. There's no, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, there's no entrance fee. So the resurrection of Jesus represents our resurrection that we get to have. 
Romans 6, verse 5. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. If we have been united together in his likeness of his death, certainly we'll also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And in Christ we shall be made alive. All shall be made alive. So here he is. He calls it out. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Right? Here's the Godhead. Second Adam is important because he's, he, he's saying, okay, God created Adam and Eve. And so here he is. He's, he's like, no, no, there, there is another head, and that is Christ. And yet Christ submits to the Heavenly Father, but is also equal to God. That's the mystery. We love that word, don't we? Everybody knows I love preaching on submission because we all get excited about submitting, don't we? It's a lot of fun. We don't like to submit. I saw a video um, that was shared with me. Somebody was like, hey, can you believe this? It was a video of somebody's wedding. And the preacher was talking about um, to the two, already spoke to the man and said, you'll honor and obey, blah, blah, blah. And then got to the woman and said, you'll honor and obey. She goes, obey? I didn't, I didn't sign up for that. And the guy still said, I'll marry you. That's what blew me away. We don't like submitting, do we? And yet the Heavenly Father submitted to the authority. Uh, Jesus Christ submitted to the Heavenly Father in order to become obedient to death, yet he is also equal with God. But in order to have the order that we need in life, there is still a Heavenly Father and there's a Son, a Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in time, all things, his enemies and everything else, will be subject to him. says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority, he says, and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the final enemy to be destroyed, it says, is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Subjection of Jesus. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Meaning he was given full authority by the Heavenly Father to do what he has done, right? And so when everything falls under subjection to Jesus Christ, who falls under subjection to the Heavenly Father, even though he's equal with God, he's willing to submit to God. There's power there. Is it simple enough now? You got it? So all, that's what he's communicating. So you'd better acknowledge the resurrection of Jesus Christ if you want to have eternal life. And so it speaks about that re- the, the relationship between the Father and the Son. 29 through 34. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, he's going to say. Bad company ruins good morals. And then what's he say? There it is. 
Wake up from your drunken stupor or wake up from your spiritual stupor. Wake up from your spiritual apathy, your spiritual complacency. As is right. And do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Another thing that we learn about hope here is that it transforms. A lot of you have shirts on a day from serve day, and there's literally almost a thousand people who serve on the weekly here. And it's remarkable to see how many individuals are willing to give of their resources and their time to come and to serve other people. But it, that, on that shirt, it says Romans chapter 12. And a kid came up to me and like, what, what's the, the X and the two lines mean? I'm like, oh boy. Um, it's fine. They're in college. They go to Michigan. Um, <laughs> Roman numerals. Romans chapter 12 is what that means. And it tells us that we are not to be conformed by this world, but to be conformed and transformed by the renewing of our mind. This is a good and pleasing will. And we recognize that and we go, wait a second. Hope transforms. It releases our clinging to life as we embrace eternity together. And Paul is someone... He had a rough life in terms of as a believer. He's somebody who, when he came to know Jesus, he, and I say all the time, Acts chapter 9, road to Damascus, come to know Jesus Christ, and then he, he goes, and right away, because of who he was, remember, I said it last week, he was the greatest uh, um, I would say, um, advocate of trying to destroy the believer, right? And so he's the, the greatest opponent and, uh, of the believer in the church. So now all of a sudden he comes into Jesus Christ, and because of, whom, uh, of who he was, the believer didn't trust him, and now the, the non-believer hated him. So right away, he's like enemies all the way around, and it, it's, it's a major issue from him. And so here he's speaking. In fact, we, um, Acts chapter 23 Acts chapter 23, 12 through 14, we know that there are 40 different men who said, I'm not going to eat or drink anything else until that man dies. Now that's called an enemy. So when he's speaking this and he's writing to them to teach and to correct them, he's telling them, don't you know, guys, we're, yeah, we're in danger every hour, but don't you get the fact that if you don't really believe in the resurrection of the dead, don't you understand? I fought with beasts at Ephesus, and he's not talking, this is figuratively speaking, right? He's talking about the hostility that he's received. He said, don't you understand all that I've encountered? But if the dead aren't raised, you might as well just get up, drink, eat, do whatever you want to do. Tomorrow we're going to die anyway. It's all good. Don't worry about it, right? That's what he says. Yeah. I think this is triggering something in them. For some reason, for generations, we've brought people into the church and we've made them think that if you're a believer, things will automatically be easier. Listen, Christianity solves a lot of problems. Do you know it also creates some difficulties as well? So he's, he's telling them, God, it's hard. But if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's worth it. So why are we doing this if there's no resurrection? There's no point. It's all in AK. It's all in vain. 
doesn't even matter. Man, that's bless your heart. You're giving all your time and all your energy to something that at the end of the day actually matters not for you because you don't believe in the resurrection, that you are a sinner. And without the grace of Jesus Christ, by conquering death, there is no eternal hope. I know that for some that offends. I'm okay with that because it's the word of God. I believe we have pastors who will not go to heaven because we have, two, we have more and more pastors who don't believe in the resurrection. Friends, if you're watching online and you're just trying to learn from this message, I don't know which camera I'm on, ask your pastor at your local church if they b- truly believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the answer is no, learn somewhere else. Don't you know that you're going to be baptized on behalf of the dead? Now, there's no, there, there's so many, inter- people are like, baptized on behalf of the dead, what's that really mean? There's dozens of interpretations on, on what it means to be baptized uh, by the dead. But what, what I would say is this, um, two things that you need to know. One, um, the majority of scholars would think, they think that that means that he's speaking on the martyrdom, that it's going to be hard and people are going to be out to get you. Remember, I just told you in Acts chapter 23, 40 people said, we're going to kill them, we're not going to eat or drink until we do. It can be hard. Other people believe that what that is intending to say is that Christian baptism um, is a picture of the identification with Christ and his death and his resurrection. That that, that would be one fair meaning. But he, he, does, he does boast a little bit here in, the, in his pride that some of them have or that he has in them. He brags a little bit on him. He says, hey, listen... I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die every day. I'm just doing the very best that I can because the resurrection is always worth it. That's why I'm putting up with all the people who are coming up against me in Ephesus. And, but if the dead aren't raised from the dead, if, if the dead aren't raised at the end, then what good is it? Might as well just wake up tomorrow, do whatever we want to do. Don't be. And he, he says this, 33 and 34. This is really significant as I conclude. He says, do not be deceived. Some of us are experiencing deception because we're giving so much voice to outside people that aren't speaking truth. Have you ever been one of those people, you like something, the first time something happens, you're like, this doesn't feel right, but then it keeps happening and in time you just come to accept it? Anybody, anybody like this for anything in your life? I, I think you know what I'm talking. All kinds of stuff. And so you just start to accept it. He, he just, I'm, I didn't ask him if I could share this, but he shared it in the first service, so I think that is kind of public knowledge. Baptized a guy in the first service, Phil, awesome guy. Um, he had given his life to alcohol. He was held captive by it. And then all types of things of fertility, infertility and things like that. And now they're about to, after 10 years of all that, they're about to adopt a baby girl. How cool is that? And she's so cute. I want to put her in my pocket. She's so cute. But he had, he started, how did he start with alcohol? I've asked before, and I've talked to so many people who've struggled with alcohol. You know what, it starts with one thing, and it just keeps going and going and going and going, and all of a sudden, you're held captive to it. And he was held captive to something, but now he is submitted to the Heavenly Father. And he's experienced freedom. I got to baptize him. And some of us have been deceived. 
Because we just, what do we do? We, we take one small what? Yeah, that's how, that's how Satan works, right? He just wants us to take one small step away from God. That trajectory, just to, it's what I shared previously. Just to swerve from the truth a little bit. Can we just take that one small step? And we've been deceived. Yeah, but you know, no, you've been deceived. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, they're, uh, you've been deceived. And he's like, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And friends, you can't define morality apart from Jesus Christ. So bad company ruins good morals. And so all of a sudden, you're giving yourself away and your belief in something because you'd rather not be offensive than to speak truth. So he's concerned about this as he's teaching, correcting the church in Corinth, and he's telling them, please, 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 you cannot surrender the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you might as well just go on eating and drinking, do whatever you want, and tomorrow, tomorrow, we die, we die. It's all good. Don't worry about it. There's nothing else to look forward to. But yet some of you have been deceived and you've been led away. And because you've been led away, I have massive concerns for you. And then in verse 34, he says, wake up from your drunken stupor, from your spiritual stupor, right? From your spiritual apathy and spiritual complacency. You need to wake up because you've just been lulled to sleep. You're just, you're doing that rocking thing that you do with little babies. If you ever had a baby, like automatically I pick up a baby and I start doing this. And then I start praying, please stop crying, please stop crying, please stop crying, right? And we get in that rhythm, we just start rocking, and that's what the world has done to us, and we're just rocking and rocking, and we've been lulled asleep. And as a result, we have sacrificed so much of the power of the resurrection. You are a sinner and broken, but there is so much grace for every single one of you. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been, and we've just been lulled asleep. And he's saying, wake up. Some of you need to wake up. The power of the resurrection changes the way you speak and the way you think and the way that you act. The only comprehension I can come up with, and I know his ways are higher and his thoughts are greater. I get that, but the only way I can comprehend any of this is for us to walk out of this place the same that we've always been is you don't understand the power of the resurrection. You're in this just stupor, and you're just, you're just you're doing your thing. You're doing my, this is my rhythm. Don't get my way. I'm in my, I'm in my rhythm. Some of us need to be woken up out of our complacency, out of our rhythm, and we need to find a new life in the power of Jesus. Well, you're like, no, no, he's offending me now. I just, I've got my rhythm. Well, seriously, that's what we do. So Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but by the transforming, by the transforming, be renewed in your mind. Romans 12, verse 2. Friends, the distinctiveness of our lives, right? It tells us in, the distinctiveness of our lives must match with the distinctiveness in our message. And it tells us that we're to be salt in Matthew. It's the words of Jesus. There's supposed to be a distinctiveness to our lives. And as a result, we wake up. Are you willing to wake up? Are you willing to wake up?
Anybody here need to wake up? Right? You know what it would change? Upon his death, there was 120 followers that we find that were with him. And then later on, it tells us upon his resurrection, before his ascension in Acts chapter 1, that he went to 500 brethren. But even that doesn't come to what's just in this room right now. I'm going to keep saying it. If this many people had the salt, the distinctiveness of Jesus in their life, believe in the power of the resurrection, just this many. Right? Maybe you need to evaluate, are you in a spiritual stupor? Are you in a spiritual stupor? I used to want to get, you know, if I was in a spiritual stupor, and I've been there, trust me, I have been there. Some of you heard it last week. Thank you for your prayers, by the way. I've been in spiritual stupors, and the way I now find myself getting out of it is not by getting, like I used to want to listen to some hype music. Give me some Eye the Tiger. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're like, yeah, let's go. And I just, I want quiet and I want the word. And all of a sudden, the power, the truth of the word begins just to grab hold of my heart once again. And some of you need that. Is it time for you to wake up? Everybody say, wake up. up. Some of you need to wake up. And so this morning, you're going to have an opportunity. If you want to be baptized, you can come be baptized. We're going to sing a song, and we're going to sing another song. And we're going to worship the King. And we're going to pray that the Lord will wake us up. And so, God, I come before you and ask that you really would wake us up, that you would... For some of us, we're in a spiritual stupor, a spiritual slumber, a spiritual place of apathy or complacency. And I'm asking that you, Lord, would allow our hearts to sit upon your truth and the power of the resurrection. And if you need to teach some of us, for some of us, this is a teaching today. For others, it's a correction. Because we've we've been lulled away. We've been deceived. We've stepped away from the power of the truth of the gospel. Wake us up, God. Wake us up, God. Wake us up. Wake us up. Wake us up. As we surrender to you. Amen.